Mark chapter five. Mark chapter five. We're going to begin, and we'll be. I'm going to start in verse 21 to give us a, just a bit of context before moving into verses 23 through 34. Mark chapter five, verses 21 through 34. When you get to Mark chapter five, give me an oh yeah. If you need a minute, say hold up, brother. Fantastic. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning we begin a new sermon series entitled, You Good. And when I think about how my friends and I greet each other when we call one another, it used to be that old greeting from that commercial in the 90s, what's that? <laughs> and they, they would come back, what's But these days, we greet each other with a simple, hey man, you good. Just this week, I had gotten a call from one of my best friends in the world. I was like, yo, what's up, man, you good? He was like, nah, man, I'm not. I was like, man, thank you for telling me that. Let's chat. We proceeded to have a conversation where he laid out some things, and it was an opportunity for me to just listen. It's an opportunity for me to validate with words like, man, I don't understand that, but that seems like it'd be really hard. It was a time for me to listen and to validate and to say, hey, brother, like, I don't know what that's like, but, man, you're right to be angry about that. And even at one point to say, I, that doesn't really make sense to me, but man, it makes sense how you might feel the way that you do. There's something really beautiful when we're honest about the condition of our souls. And you have someone respond in grace and kindness to give you space and validate what you're experiencing. So I want to begin the sermon series with an apology and an invitation. 
The apology is, I want to apologize to anyone who's ever felt acute pain, anxiety, and shame. And you've been shamed or guilted into believing that just praying a little more or having more faith or reading your Bible more would be the solution. I want to apologize for the ways in which those scars, the ways those scars have continued to influence your life after all these years. Because in the way that we experience anxiety and shame outside of ourselves, in so many ways, healing comes from outside of us with others. And if you've not experienced that, I want to apologize to you. And I want to invite you into potentially paying attention to what the Lord may be inviting you into, particularly, friends, I want to invite you to feel all the things. I want to invite you to feel all the things. Now, there are some of us who've made a lifetime of pushing and pressing feelings away and feeling nothing, busying our lives and being very busy or avoiding certain conversations, avoiding certain things because of how it makes us feel. You take that and you compound upon it a culture that says, have it all buttoned up, displays of emotion are a mark of spiritual immaturity, and what you get is a recipe for stuffing. Not the thing white folks eat at Thanksgiving. (laughs) But you stuff all of your feelings and emotions down and you stuff and you stuff and you stuff, but y'all know what happens to a uh, jack-in-the-box, right? It's only a matter of time before those feelings pop out. Or, like toxic sludge in the sea, it oozes out and seeps into every area of our lives. When we avoid what we feel, which is what God gave us because it allows us to experience the world, feelings aren't bad. We need to feel all the things, and that's my invitation. When it comes to feelings as gifts from God, I like the words of Chip Dodd in his book, The Voice of the Heart, when he says this. He says that feelings speak the language of the heart. We come out of the womb experiencing life through feelings. It's cold. I'm in pain. It's bright out here, whatever they might be. They are primary, they are primary to our human experience and awaken us to our hearts. We use feelings to communicate our God-given hunger for relationship. And unless we rediscover our ability to feel deeply and express feelings clearly, we will never find full life. If you think about feelings, feelings are ways that our bodies scream need. And even for those of us who feel like we don't need nobody, I don't need nobody, I'm self-sufficient in and of myself, the reality is we all need someone and the feelings of fear or shame or anger or hurt or loneliness, they all speak to our deep desire for connection. So this sermon series, we're going to take a look at two of those emotions that silently drive so much of our world. Much like an operating system within a computer are our feelings and they drive and operate our lives. For me, the main operating feeling in my operating system is shame. I've been in counseling for two years to deal with it, and it's awesome. We're going to talk about that later. Not the particulars of my counseling, but <laughs> the underlying operating system that we work, that we work through. 
But when it comes to anxiety, I like Brene Brown, the way that she describes anxiety. I'm still in my introduction. We're going to get into the text. Hang in there with me. But she defines anxiety this way. She says anxiety can be both a state and a trait, meaning that some of us feel anxious mainly in response to certain situations, while some of us can be naturally more disposed to anxiety than others. Our anxiety often leads to one of two coping mechanisms, coping mechanisms, worry or avoidance, neither strategy is very effective. Now, I'll be honest, until a couple of years ago, I didn't even know anxiety was a thing. I just assumed that was one of those things that you just chose not to feel, that you just barreled your way through and you dealt with it. The longer that I pastor, the more I realize that we are in an anxiety epidemic. Some might even call it an anxiety pandemic where so many of us live with the constant fear that there's danger literally around every corner. Some of you even in this room living with that reality today. I didn't know much about anxiety and I still am learning, but I thank God for some LPC, some licensed professional counselors that we've consulted in this series who are gonna help us out, but shame. Shame also is a product or even the operating system for how so many of us live our lives. And Brene Brown describes shame in this way. She says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love, belonging, and connection. Shame is bankruptcy. Shame is what many experience during infertility. Shame is what happens after you've raged at your kids. Shame is getting laid off and having to tell your pregnant wife. Shame is your boss dehumanizing and, de- and belittling you in front of your coworkers. Shame is not making partner. Shame is that DUI. And shame, according to Brene Brown, It's telling your fiance that your dad lives in France when in fact he's in prison. So many different ways, anxiety and shame, inform how we move through the world. And if they are products of others, it means that the pathway to healing is also through other people. And once again, the invitation this morning and throughout this series, as you engage in this text, is to lean in to feel deeply And it's to tell the truth about how you're feeling. Because anxiety and shame will either cause your soul to wither in secrecy or be a catalyst for transformation. And that's where we find this woman in the text in Mark chapter 5. Let me set the scene. This is a pericope about two daughters. One, a little girl belonging to Jairus laying deathly and gravely ill in her bed. The other, a daughter of God, who is deathly and gravely ill with a chronic illness. Two daughters, one whose father loves her so much, he's willing to ambush Jesus as he's come off this boat for the benefit of his child. The other, whose father we don't know about earthly, but get an indication of who her heavenly father is. 12 years of a chronic illness, 
12 years of hemorrhaging and not just having her cycle once a month, but a constant hemorrhaging that would have rendered her ceremonially unclean, unable to worship. A chronic illness that meant that there was a certain smell attached to her. A chronic illness that would have rendered her a pariah. A chronic illness that would have made her the lowest of the low, dirty, unclean. Hey, Nina, don't get near Nina. She's unclean. 12 years. The text gives us an indication that she's seen doctors and they have tried medicines and essential oils and herbs and nothing has worked. She spent all of her money. She's seen every doctor. She's taken every pill you can possibly take. It doesn't work. In fact, she got worse. If there's a picture of hopelessness in our Bible, it's Nina in her issue of blood in Mark 5. She's exhausted her options. She's likely run out of resources and nothing has changed. To color this a bit more, Mark uses the Greek word mastix, which is a graphic expression meaning whip, lash, or scourge, meaning that her pleasant plight combines physical suffering with shame and in some ways connotes punishment. From the Greek text, we might even ask the question, why has God allowed this woman to live with this condition for 12 years? Perhaps you've lived with a condition for a long time and you've asked God the same question. If there was ever a picture of hopelessness, if there was ever a picture of it won't get better, if there was ever a picture of what's the point, and if there was ever a picture of I just want to quit, it's her. But she does something remarkable. And it seems small, but it's a game changer. She speaks to herself. She says to herself, Self, if I can just get to the hem of his garment. Little details like that we can't look over because there is a reality where her inner dialogue now comes on the outside and we get an idea of what she had to say to herself in order to act. We all speak to ourselves whether you want to admit it or not. We all have a language that we speak to ourselves. We all have narratives. Again, like operating systems, these narratives carry us through life. They allow us to see who's safe and who's not. They allow us to see who's friend, who's foe, and all of these things manifest externally. And this internal dialogue is powerful because it colors the world around us. And when it comes to shame and anxiety, both the Greek text and the very nature of her situation gives us an indication that both shame and fear is in play here. When it comes to these two things, this internal dialogue can have a damaging effect to our lives. I was speaking to Megan Birch, who's LPC and a member this week, and she said something so profound concerning self-talk that I've adapted in this way. She said, speak truth to yourself, but don't listen to the lies you tell yourself. She said, there's a difference between speaking to yourself, which is an active speaking. It's an active 
practice as opposed to listening to yourself, which is a passive practice. We can listen to ourselves. The problem is, friends, we got blind spots and we lie to ourselves all day long. But when we speak the truth to ourselves, it combats the narratives and allows us to not only feel shame, but to then speak into that shame with what's true. To feel anxiety, but then speak into that anxiety with what is true. Verse 28, she said to herself, if I can just touch his garment, I will be made well. When you think about what she's, where she is and what she's experiencing, it would be a good time now to delineate between fear and anxiety. When the pandemic hit, and I'm uh, live streaming everybody's church, as many of us were, you ain't got to admit or acknowledge that, but I was live streaming at least like eight, nine, ten services a week, and everybody was speaking about fear. Don't fear. Don't fear. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Don't fear. And I kept thinking to myself, that sounds good, but I don't think that's right. Because fear is sudden and it comes upon by circumstances and it happens when you're in a particular situation that you can point to and say, I'm afraid of that. But anxiety is this slow dripping, impending dread that any and everything could go wrong. And when you're in a pandemic and you don't know whether or not your neighbor and their sneeze could potentially take you out, that's not fear, that's anxiety. I imagine what this woman is living with and experiencing is a bit. Sure, there's some fear here. We're going to get into that in verse 33, but a life of shame and anxiety, just like a slow drip over time, this rolling dread that something bad is going to happen. And in those moments of anxiety, friends, when you're driving down the road and that bus or that car or that intersection, or that light, and all those things could go wrong. It's in those moments that rather than listening to what's inside, you speak into that. Because both fear and anxiety have a tendency to make us false prophets. And if we were to take track of all the things we said was going to kill us, and yet here we sit, we would find that we've been wrong and God has been faithful. But I want you to notice something so crucial to this entire scene that's really, really pertinent to us this morning. I want you to notice what happens actually in this scene. You got Jesus. And when I say he's surrounded by people, he's surrounded by folks. They're pressing up against him. I don't think this woman's the only one who says, if I can just get near, if I can just get close, I'll be healed. You've got this Jesus's disciples acting sort of as a bodyguard for him, trying to insulate him from all the people pressing up against him. And it's the ancient Near East. People don't take baths all the time. People's feet stink. So I'm just trying to set the scene. I'm a notorious, uh, I spit when I talk. I hate that about myself. But I imagine, like when I get real excited, I spit a lot. But I imagine you got Jesus surrounded by all these people, and you got everybody like yelling, shouting, Jesus, 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 just spit flying everywhere. (laughs) They breath bad. It's funky. And it's a gang of folks. People are constantly touching them. 
But somewhere in the back of that crowd, there's a woman with a 12-year issue of blood pressing her way, squeezing her way, ducking underneath legs and turning around people, just trying to get close. At one point, she's about 10 feet away from Jesus, and I imagine that somebody sideswipes her. She's on her side, and there she is on the ground crawling. If I can just get to the hem, if I can just get to the hem of his garment, if I can just get to the hem of his garment, and there she is, and she touches it, and immediately Jesus senses something's up. What does she do? She does something I would encourage all of us to do. She does the work. She did the work. Meaning, she didn't see her issue and her problem as something to get around, to go over, to go under. She didn't try to prepositional phrase this thing. A prepositional phrase is anything that you can do to a log. You could be on it, you can be in it, you could be around it. You could, no, she didn't try to be around it. She went through it. She could have sat on the outside and, and said, Lord, God, I know you can heal me. Please heal me. But she did that and she did the work. She pressed through the crowd. Even when the other people around her were directly affected by her issue, she still pressed through. Because when it comes to Jesus, we shouldn't have a scarcity mindset and think that it's just only one thing, -uh. Jesus is sufficient for all of us. She presses through it. She didn't simply say, I don't have an issue. I ain't got an issue of blood, I'm fine. She doesn't do that thing where you are obviously sick, but you claim health as if your claiming health is going to magically make you not sick. She's honest and she moves through it. And this is the invitation. It's to feel deeply. If you want to have freedom and healing, you can't subvert the process. Healing is not efficient. There is no straight line in healing. Y'all seen them memes? What I thought success looked like and then what success actually really looks like? That's what it means to do the work. To do the work means to feel. And I would go so far as to say, friends, when we don't feel, when we press down feelings and ignore they're there, we become less human. Jesus died to make us human again. If sin dehumanized us, making us less than, in some ways, human, if sin mars everything about us, then the work of Christ in salvation is to humanize us and make us like him, the truest and perfect human. And Jesus feels deeply, he feels anguish, he feels sorrow, he feels loss and grief and joy and ecstasy. He feels all those things and he doesn't ignore them, we see them in the text. And if we want to be healed, we've got to feel the grief. We've got to name the emotion. And for me personally, it looks like taking my inner dialogue, which is constantly saying, hey, Jason, Unless you preach the best message these people have ever heard in their lives, you're worthless. Hey, Jason, unless you've got everything buttoned up at home and look perfect, you're doing a terrible job. And hey, Jason, 
unless and until you get your financial house in order, how in the world do you think that you can lead anybody else? Internally. Hey, hey, Jason, you remember about five years ago when you were in really good shape? What happened to that guy? Wow, he's falling far down the ladder. I'm like, hey, self, chill out. I've been going through some things. But I've had to take, and I've got a note on my phone that has affirmations of who I am. It's the truth that when other people tell lies about me and when I tell lies about myself, I've got to speak the truth to myself and not listen to them or me because there are certain concrete truths that God has spoken that just will not change. For me, the work looks like counseling and tears and screaming and pain. It looks like me telling my counselor over and over again, I hate you, only to call and schedule another appointment. (laughs) I remember one time I said, Rachel, you're the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And then the next time I got on with her, it was like, Rachel, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. There's something that happens when you sit and feel deeply and don't run from it. And here's what I've experienced. It's increased my capacity to love. It's increased my capacity to be gracious and kind and patient. Just last week, I had a buddy of mine. I was telling him, he was like, man, tell me about, the, tell me about your first year at Fellowship Bible Church. And I was like, how much time you got? And I began to talk to him and he was like, and you still show up to work every day? I said, brother, there are two things, two incontrovertible things I believe about all people. One, I believe that at any given moment, everyone's doing the absolute best that they can. I believe that. I believe everybody's doing the best they absolutely can. And second, without fail, every single human being is worthy of love and dignity, whether they agree with me or not, whether they like me or not whether they share my politics or not, whether they share my views of public school or homeschool or not, whether they share my views of alcohol or not, whether they like me or not, you can absolutely curse me out. And it has happened before. And I want to be able to respond in love and grace because that's what Jesus does. And the only way that we can respond in kind, that we can be wells and rivers of living water, friends, is if we do the work. But we've also, we also have to remember the and. We have to remember the and. Verse 30, Jesus is here perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. So Jesus, and I, I, there's, a, there's a bit of uh, divine irony happening here in the text. The divine irony is that we know what's happening, but we're under the impression that Jesus doesn't. That somehow he's surprised when power goes outside of him as if we can elicit something from Jesus that he does not allow. There's an irony here that we're made to believe that somehow this woman has surprised Jesus. When in fact, that would be impossible because how can the one who can tell the beginning from the end be surprised? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing occurs to God? Has it ever happened upon you that nothing ever happens to God? He's preexisted all things. He, he remembers the end from the beginning. He separated the east is from the west and he's the only one who knows where your sin is. And he's the only one who can look into the future and have memories. And yet we're supposed to believe 
that he's somehow surprised? No. Why is it that he let this woman live for 12 years with an issue of blood with a chronic illness and chose not to heal her? Why is it that the man was born blind? Why is it that the man was born crippled? Why is it that the man in the, in the, in, in, in the Gesserines, in the cemetery, had a, a legion of demons shackled up in chains? Why does God allow this? It is so that those around might witness in public what he's already doing in private. Jesus does this for her, but he does this for everyone else who's around her. She's tried the medicine. She's tried everything else, but has she tried Jesus? And this points to a very important dichotomy that so many folks have lived in. There are a lot of churches who believe that if you pray and fast and read your Bible, that that is the solution to everything. There are other places that believe that religion is a scourge upon humanity and all you need is five milligrams of this pill. And you get the religious folks who historically have been against medicine. They'll go see a doctor for their heart. They'll go see a surgeon for that brain tumor. They'll go see a sports medicine specialist for that hamstring. But when it comes to our brains, somehow that's off limits. So you either get an explicitly spiritual diagnosis and spiritual practice for your malady, or it's all medical. And friends, here I am saying, remember the end. It's not either or, it's Jesus and medicine. It's Jesus and therapy, Jesus and counseling, Jesus and community. We need them both. And here's a really good place for me to explain why I stand the way that I stand. I believe that God has what's called common grace, which means that God's grace is the thing that keeps the world spinning. And the reason that the world has not blown up and we have not burned it up is because God's grace has tempered the evil that men are capable of. I believe that. I also believe that in God's common grace, that all truth belongs to God. And where we find truth, where we find truth, it belongs to God. So if science understands something in deeper ways than a first century fisherman does, then I don't believe that that's opposed to the things of God. I believe that God uses them for our own good to work together. And when it comes to this text in verse 32, Jesus looks around, he sees and is trying to figure out who's done it. And this woman, knowing what had happened, comes in fear and trembling. She's terrified. She's a woman who's just made all these people unclean by touching them. She's touched Jesus's clothes. That action alone might have rendered her with a death sentence, but she falls down, she tells him the truth, and he speaks to her, and his first words are, daughter. And this is in a section of scripture when he's on his way to heal Jairus' daughter. He, we don't know where her earthly father is, but Jesus speaks to her as if he's her father. He's his daughter, so tenderly, so sweetly. Jairus' need is urgent. His daughter is dying. 
But the God of the universe will not be rushed, especially when someone that he loves is in distress. He meets her in her fear and he lifts her chin up and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Her faith, her faith. And this isn't just some random pie in the sky hope. No, her faith speaks to this confidence and trust in someone accompanied by action. Faith is active. Her faith was, if I can just touch the hem of his garment. Her action was, I'm gonna climb and crawl and press my way through all of these people to get there. Her faith was, I believe that there's no other solution that can heal me, I'm hopeless. Her action was, there's nothing that will stop me from getting to Jesus. If we only approached our shame and anxiety the same way, friends. I believe that Jesus can heal and I believe that he's with me. I believe that he loves me and I need to do the work to deal with this shame and anxiety. And that could be a lifetime, that could be in, 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 in a year, whatever and however long it takes, it's Jesus and. And when I think about faith, I was reminded this week of a book called Fear and Trembling by Soren Kierkegaard, who's a Danish philosopher and he writes in Fear and Trembling, here's the picture. He writes in Fear and Trembling about the movement that Abraham makes when it comes to faith. He refers to Abraham as the knight of faith and of course this is a 17th century picture of Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his son on the mountain. And Kierkegaard says that Abraham does two important things. <clears throat> One in particular, that is faith. He says, Abraham heard from God. I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham, both in prayer, ascended to the throne of God and said, Lord, save my son. And the next movement is the movement that's most important. It's the next movement that many of us don't make. He says, Lord, save my son because you're the one who can raise the dead back to life. And he lays his prayer there before God. And then he returns back to his life. And the returning back to his life is the returning, it's the action in, hey God, I prayed, now I'm going to be obedient to what you told me to do. Hey God, I brought my petition to you, now I'm gonna return to my daily life and do the very things you've asked of me. The knight of faith not only believes intellectually, but lives as if the one that we've taken our petitions to is truly capable of doing more and rescuing us. Here's the thrust for this series. I'm almost done. I got three more minutes. Here's the thrust for this series. Your fear and anxiety can be a pathway to experiencing Jesus in new and powerful ways. It can be. Fear and anxiety is a gift. It may not feel like that, but they're invitations to experience Jesus in new and powerful ways. Fear and anxiety can be good. They don't always need to be pathologized. But I wonder, I just wonder, if in all of this, God is inviting us to feel where we are, to see how he encounters that with us through the text, and then invites us to do the work. Are y'all all right? 
Y'all been kind of quiet today. Y'all good? You good? I want to finish with four ways that we as a church might be able to come alongside of you. In our care ministry, there are four really important areas that we've been pushing people toward and that we've seen God work and move in. The first is Regen, which Regen is a 12-step discipleship program where folks come in with, we all have sin issues and we all have maybe acute addiction issues, whatever it is, we come in, we take the Bible, we take the gospel, we apply it to those things and we invite each other in the context of community to work through some of this stuff. Regen is incredible. I can't recommend that more. It's, it's transforming. If you think about transformation at our church, Regen is one of the places you see it. The second way that we might be able to help is through soul care. If you're in a place and you need some biblical counseling, you're in a place where you need some biblical guidance, we have soul care ministers who've been trained to listen and to uh, pray with and then to advise uh, you biblically. So we want to commend that to you. We've got Grief Share, which is for those who are experiencing deep grief or acute hurt and pain. If you're going through something, it's a time to commiserate and to be together and to share what's really going on with one another. And then lastly is Stephen's ministry. And if you're just looking for a place for somebody to listen in a non-judgmental way and not really respond or not really reply, like just literally just listen. You just need a place to vent. I, I know I do sometimes. And then Stephen's ministry is a wonderful place to do that. I think in all of this, when I think about what God may be doing in you, as I certainly know that he may be doing in me, is I know that when Jesus invited me on this road to do this work, he met me, he provided all that I needed and created a capacity in me that I did not know was possible. So I don't know how it is the spirit of God is leading you to ingest and believe and listen to this, but I just wanna take a few moments right now to listen to what the spirit of the Lord has to say for us and then we will continue in our worship this morning. So let's pray. Lord, this morning there is a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling in this room. And they're messy and unwieldy and inefficient. And we're not always exactly sure what to do with them. But I know that stuffing them and ignoring them is not gonna work. And so Lord, would you give us the courage to lean in and to step through to do the work and to move through them as you would lead in God. And Lord, in the ways in which we've been harmed and hurt by others, would you use us as wounded healers after the fashion of you, Jesus, the ultimate wounded healer, to be agents of healing in the lives of our brothers and sisters? Because unlike this woman, we are not hopeless. We have hope. And I pray, Jesus, you would make that hope real to us and what we proclaim and what we sing. So, Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.